0: Okay, so our text for the teaching today is from Matthew 1. So I'll actually get you to stand if you don't mind. We have a short reading of the scripture this morning. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I won't read all the names for you again this week. We'll skip down to the last verse of the genealogy, verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. This is God's word. You can grab a seat. So two weeks ago, we, we were starting a new series uh, this, uh, at the start of this year in the Gospel of Matthew. And two weeks ago, we looked at this genealogy for the first time, and I read all of the names. Um, and then last week, you know, I was in COVID protocols with my family, and... Uh, We're going to come back, though, to the genealogy again today. I want to take a look at it, because even though it's a really ancient, weird way of starting a book, starting a story about a narrative about the most important person in history, and that's what Matthew's going to say to us about Jesus, it also says something really current. Even though it's an ancient way of starting a book, it actually says something really current to us about some of the modern dilemmas that we have in our world. So what are these modern dilemmas? Well, as I look around the room and as we look around our world, people, we are people with differences. Hello, yes. Uh, We have lots of differences. Some people wave, some people don't. We've got different genders in the room. We've got different ethnicities. We've got different things. If we were to go around, we would find many similarities, but also a lot of differences about. And in our time in history, we tend to look back at our past and, and see that these differences that we have have caused lots of problems in the world. They've been the source of wars or murders, or injustice, or oppression. The problems that we have in our world. And one of the great promises of our modern liberal democracy is that with enough education, and if we were to get affluent enough, if everybody could become like middle class, or if we could get the right pol- politicians in power, or get enough technology that could connect us despite our differences, then we could solve these problems, and we would be united, and we'd be able to come together. And this is a promise, there's this promise that we're moving kind of towards this golden age in history. We have differences, but we could be united. And, and this is maybe no better captured than in John Lennon's classic song, Imagine. So the, if you don't, are familiar with the song, it basically talks about how there's imagining all that these differences don't exist. There's no religion. There's no hell. There's no possessions. There's nothing to kill or die for. And then at the end of the song, it ends like this. Imagine all the people in the world are sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. Now this is, uh, we're actually driving on the way here down Granville, right past the art gallery, and it just says these two huge signs, Imagine Peace. The same idea just on the art gallery of this song. This hope that the world will live as one. Most of my life, so I'm in my late 30s, and uh, this story and this song have been like, they, they, they ran unhindered in, in my life. It's always been an expectation and a hope that's kind of mobilized our society. But in the last few years, especially during, uh, since the pandemic, they've shown us that we're actually a much more fractured and divided society than we probably hoped or thought. And then these differences are, are probably too big from keeping us or from allowing us to be united and to love one another. And and maybe this is no better shown than uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, a bunch of celebrities got together and they sang Imagine on uh, Instagram. I think it was on Gal Gadot's Instagram. And so here's a picture of a few of them. And uh, so we've got Gal Gadot and Sarah Silverman and Will Ferrell. And so you can go watch this later. But the backlash to them singing this iconic song of hope and peace was just like swift. And merciless. So here's what the New York Times wrote. This is the closing paragraph or sentence of their article. In times of crisis, some think it's enough to throw something slapdash together, serve it to the world, and hope it heals some people. But that's not, just not how things work. Uh, that's the New York Times. So they're, they're talking about how, and uh, they use the word naive over and over again in their article. Like the, the, this is just naive to believe that just some, you know, millionaires singing the song is somehow going to heal the world. And I think is like the last two years in a nutshell. A lot of these hopes and dreams are fading and, and so I for one feel left in a bit of a tension. Because I I I don't know about you, but I actually want this vision of peace. I want to imagine peace. I want us to be unified that's a hope that I have, that our differences won't actually have the last word in my life or in our world. And Jesus actually prays this. It's a, it's a huge theme of the New Testament. If you read many of Paul's letters, that's how they end, is an encouragement for the church around Jesus to actually get along and to be united. So there is this beautiful hope and even the story arc in the Bible, and I think a longing in many of us that we want to be united. But at least for me right now, it's pretty evident that the promise that our society has made, it's been delivered. And we're a pretty fractured people. And that's why we're going to look at this genealogy again today. Because through this genealogy, the gospel author is promising the same thing. That the differences between us as humans don't have to have the last word in our world. That there's hope that the great divides of who we are can actually be healed in the ancient world and then today in ours. So through this weird list of names, we're getting a peek into how the family of God and the kingdom of God actually operate and how it can bring unity amidst diversity and peace to these long-standing fractured relationships that we have that exists still today in our world. So we're going to look at the passage in two parts. We're going to look at three of the great divides that this genealogy actually talks about existed then and exist today. And then we're going to end with talking about how Jesus uh, offers to heal these divides in our, how he can bring unity, unity to these different divides that we have. So let's look at these three divides first. The first one is about uh, the divide between men and women, the divide between men and women. Now, in the time of, of Matthew's gospel, when he wrote this, the disparity between men and women was a really, really big one. Women were generally treated like property. Women were not able to testify in court. They were thought to be unreliable witnesses. And female children were often killed because they preferred male children. And it was a patriarchal society. That meant the, the husband or the grandfather, the older male, was the one who was the most valued in society. And so it was, it was, uh, there was a huge disparity between men and women. And while there's been massive strides since those, that time, and I don't mean to belittle any of those, There's still much inequality between men and women in our time. The Me Too movement that uh, has come out in the last couple of years has shown us of of some of this disparity. Uh, I think we like to think of ourselves here in BC as a very um, equal society and maybe leading the way in Canada. Actually, there's a gap between men and women in in BC. It's about 30%. 30%. Gender-based violence uh, stays in Canada a female is killed by her partner. And uh, I was chatting with uh, the woman who leads the MCC, which is the humanitarian branch of our conference. And uh, we were chatting about halfway through the pandemic, I guess, like a year in. And I was just asking her about, she's telling me about all the wonderful work that they do in, in their organization. And I said, like, how can we partner with you? At, how can I partner with you as a pastor? How can we partner with you as a church to help you, you know, serve the marginalized? And I thought she's going to tell me, you know, donate to this cause in Africa or something, you know, this place that's war-torn or had this, uh, uh, you know, an earthquake or something like that. And you know what she told me? She said, one of the things that I'm hearing in the pandemic is that domestic violence is on the rise. So she said, one of the most helpful things you can do is talk to your leaders about it. And, and she sent me a bunch of pamphlets. If we ever get back into the chapel, you'll see they're in the women's bathroom. That opens a door, hopefully, for any women that are facing that. And so there's all these gaps that still exist today. And um, women generally in, in history, have uh, men have, have oppressed women and been um, over them. But, and, and women have, have fought for equality. And I'm a, a believer in that. I think we need to walk there together. But even today, some of the rhetoric that's used uh, for, for women to get equality surpasses that, I would say. And it becomes a, a rhetoric that is shaming towards men. That to be a man is is something. There's something wrong with you or deficient in you. And uh, this can also continue to make a divide between us, even though it's actually a move towards equality. But there, this shaming language that exists, interaction can continue to widen the gap between men and women. So, how does this genealogy? address this divide between men and women that existed in Jesus' time and and continues to exist today. Well, remember that this genealogy was written in a time of a patriarchal culture, that men were valued over women. And so the names of women would almost never be written in a genealogy, because if it was, it would mean that you were fatherless, if they only put your mother in there. And that would be viewed as a huge stain on you and your family, and it should bring deep shame to you if that's your lineage. Yet in the lineage, in the genealogy that we have for Jesus, there are actually five women mentioned. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. In the genealogy of the one true king, Jesus the Messiah. So by including these women in Jesus' genealogy, the author is saying something very stark and countercultural. He's recognizing the value of women in God's family. And he's saying something uh, profound, that we need men and women to have a genealogy. Um, and, And it's very unique in this genealogy because he will say things like, Boaz fathered Obed with Ruth. So he's talking about both the father and the mother in order to continue the lineage on. And so he's saying men and women have to work together to have a genealogy, to carry this blessing and the story of God that we talked about two weeks ago. Men and women working together in our differences in order to bring this into the world. And this mirrors the idea that we see in the first page of the Bible, the first chapter, the first page in Genesis 1 that God says we are to reflect him into the world. That's the job of what we're supposed to do. We are images of God in the world. And he says we do this by being men and women, by working together to be fruitful and multiply is a command that needs both men and women. And it's a command to both men and women. And part of the curse that happens In the story of the Bible, just a few chapters later, there's this story of the curse or the fall. The effects of sin in the world is that men and women will actually be at odds with each other. That these differences that we have will cause divide. And it says specifically that the men will rule over the women and the women will always want to rule over the men. That's the way that it talks about it in Genesis 3. And so when the author of Matthew starts his genealogy this way, he's saying something actually quite profound. He's saying the effects of Genesis 3, the curse that's plagued humanity, um, is no, it has a chance to be healed in this person of Jesus, that he can bring us back into this relationship that we were created for, together to image God by working together in spite of our differences. That there's this promise of peace and partnership despite the difference between men and women. So that's the first div- divide that this uh, genealogy addresses. The second one is status. Andy Crouch, uh, in, this, uh, in his book, Playing God, which is wonderful if you ever want to read it, he says this about status. Status at its root is where you stand. That's what it means, where you stand. Status is about your place in line. It's about the human drive to be ranked above another, to be counted more worthy than another. Status is about counting, numbering, ranking, and ultimately excluding. And every culture has a way of doing this, of of ranking people, of numbering them and excluding them. In our culture, we rank people by achievement, what you've done, the things that you've accomplished. So if you go to a job interview, or if any of you are are applying for, you know, schools, um, they ask about your marks in school and what you've done in your work history and your volunteer history. Uh, if you uh, are part of social media, on social media, then the things that determine you are, are your status are like the size audience or how many likes or views that you have. You know, if you play sports, uh you're it's an achievement culture. I just can't walk into the Canucks practice facility and be like, hi, my name is John Howe. My grandfather is Gordy Howe. My father's Mark Howe. So you should just let me play. That's not true by the way, but they don't care who my family is, they'll be like, are you good at the hockey? And I'd be like, Mediocre, really, is where I stand. They're like, then you're not on the team. Um, but our, our world is a meritocracy, right? That's, that's what it's called, that people's status is based on what they've done in the past, what they're doing now, and what we'll be doing in the future. I work with entrepreneurs and a side gig, and a lot of them may not be doing a lot now, but they'll tell you about how their company is going to change the world. It's all about this potential but that's the merit the the meritocracy world that we live in what have you done what are you doing now and what will you do in the future are you a good investment but in jesus time the biggest status symbol or one of the biggest status symbols was your family it was your genealogy so your genealogy functioned like a resume and if you're from a small town like i am i'm from a town of just over 2,000 people small towns also work this way i think i had four jobs growing up before i left for university i never ever submitted a resume they were just like, oh yeah, John Howe, like, he's good people. They just know you. Or they, my friend would advocate for me at the job, and they'd be like, yeah, okay, come work for us. And that's the way that it, it works. So if Matthew here is making the claim that Jesus is fit for the status of the king, of the one great king of all time, we should expect that his, his resume, his genealogy, should also be pristine. It should be perfect, and should showcase that he is fit to be the king. He should come from good people. And we have to recognize here that Matthew hasn't chosen everybody in Jesus' family lineage. So this, this, uh, he's going here in this genealogy for style points, not like historical exactitude. So think, it's more like a poem than like a 23andMe test. That's what's going on in, in Genesis 1. That just means that he could leave some people out. If he wanted, like, we've all got those embarrassing uncles, right? I assume that's what you're all talking about when you're chatting and passing the peace time. We've all got those people in our, in our uh, genealogy that we're kind of like, we don't really want to talk about. So we would expect that Matthew would just leave those folks out. So what do we see when we look at this genealogy? Let's take a look, and we'll, again, we'll just take a look. We'll focus in on the women here. So we see a, a woman named Ruth, and she's, she, she's an absolute saint, He's one of the most amazing characters in the Bible. Uh, If you don't know the story of Ruth, I'll I'll just quickly explain it to you. So Ruth marries a a man, and then her and her brother and sister-in-law and her mother-in-law, they go to a foreign land to work. So it's two couples and a mother-in-law that go there. And both of the husbands die. So it's just the mother-in-law Ruth and her sister that are left now they're in a foreign land which means that they're vulnerable and like I said This is a patriarchal culture. They're women. So they're also very vulnerable They have no man around so the mother-in-law says I'm gonna go back home Naomi She's like I'm gonna go back home people will take care of me and I encourage you the da- the daughters-in-law who now are both widows She says just go back to where you're from and maybe you'll find someone to marry you and, and to give you children because that was the biggest idea of blessing in that society So Ruth's sister-in-law goes, she hugs them, they all cry, she goes back to her people. But here is what Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Don't plead with me to abandon you, or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Just this beautiful covenant that she makes with her mother-in-law. And one of the unique things about it is, in the Bible, we often think of this covenant language as between married people. But here, Ruth makes it with her mother-in-law, another person. And it mirrors the covenant faithfulness of God that we see throughout the Bible. So she's just an absolute saint and just a beautiful person. So Ruth is, is in Jesus' genealogy. But we also see other people. We see some sinners. And there's a woman here named Rahab. In the Bible, you might say, you know, uh, someone so-and-so, child of so-and-so. So your first name, your last name would be like your father's name. And Rahab, do you know how, what she's called in the Bible almost all the time? Rahab, the prostitute, the, har- the harlot. That's just like what all. That's her name. Uh, growing up, well, I, like I said, I had a bunch of jobs growing up and... Uh, one of them was, was a, being a truck driver, but I was only like 18 or 19 years old and I had a bunch of younger sisters. They were all still in school. So we had lots of school snacks at home. So when we would go away on these long trucking trips, I would just grab a bunch of them and bring them. And one of the things I would bring was juice boxes. <laughs> And these guys that are like, you know, 35 or whatever are like, just thought it was the funniest thing that I brought juice boxes. So they just called me Johnny Juicebox. That was my nickname. So I could literally become like the richest man in the world. I could become the prime minister of Canada. And when I go home, juice box. That's what they call me, juice box. That's Rahab. No matter where she goes, what she does, Rahab the prostitute. That's what she's called in the Bible. A sinner, a person that we would think would be on the outside, yet she's included. So we see saints, we see sinners, and then we just see some really strange people too. Tamar is a good example. If you don't know this story, we don't often tell it in Sunday school. Let me just update you on on what it is. There's this woman named Tamar. So similar situation, she gets married and her her husband dies. So she's a widow. Now in that culture, this is going to sound disgusting to you, but this is what they did in the culture. In that culture, one of the other husbands or the father-in-law would impregnate that, that woman. And it was like a consensual thing, because the best thing that you could do as a woman was to have kids. And so that was the responsibility of the other brothers or the father-in-law. So I'm not advocating that we do that now, just to be clear. But that's how that happened in that culture. None of the brothers or the father-in-law would impregnate Tamar. So what she does is she dresses up like a cult prostitute and tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her and then impregnates her. I know, right? The story is in the Bible. And I'm not saying this for shock value, um, but if you feel slightly disgusted by that or grossed out by it, imagine being in a society where your genealogy is the most important thing about you. That's in your resume. And so why does Jesus keep a woman like Tamar in there? Why, is, why not just kick these embarrassing people out? See, Matthew's trying to tell us that there's something really different about the family of God and the way that it works. All cultures ask us for our resumes in some way, shape, or form to determine our status. They'd want to figure out, are you a have or a have not? Are you a winner or a loser? Are you a good investment or are you a lemon? Are you part of the upward mobility here or part of the lower class? And this binning, this separating people out, Creates division. That's what creates division amongst us. Again, here's what Andy Crouch says. Every move up in line requires that someone else move back in line. The quest for status pitches us against our fellow image bearers. Again, we see this story of Genesis 1 and 3 played out, that we are to come together as image bearers in front of God, and we need each other actually to reflect God. But what this quest for status does is it places us above one another, puts people in, and but not Jesus. Jesus has kings in his genealogy. He's got King David, the king of Israel. And he's also got Father Abraham, as we looked at two weeks ago, the one who is blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world, the one through whom the story starts in the Gospel of Matthew. But he's also not afraid to have rejects in his genealogy. People who are embarrassments or just the straight-up strange in God's family. And it's saying the same thing to us. There's something about this Jesus that's going to happen that's actually going to just flip the script and recall us back into that Genesis 1 vision of what it means to be human. It's going to call the outsider back in, the embarrassment, the screw-up. Both the prostitute and the king have a place in Jesus' lineage. So that's the second divide, status. The third and final divide I can be very brief about in this genealogy, and it's race. And I can be uh, qu- qu- short on it because there's no doubt that in Jesus' time, race was a problem and something that divide people. And very unfortunately, I can say without a doubt in my mind that 2,000 years later, we're not much further along. It's still something that's you know, dominating our news cycles. And uh, I know for many of us, it's also dominating our, our hearts and our thoughts and, and relationships that we have too. So how does this genealogy address race, this divide that we have? Well, at first glance, we may not see it, but a first century Jew would pick it up right away. Because all of the women that we've stated are actually not from Jewish descent. Here's what tater Richard Hayes says. Tamar was understood in some Jewish traditions as a Canaanite or a proselyte. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. These are women who are all racially outside and sometimes even part of groups that are enemies of the people of God. And so there's, again, this amazing promise in this genealogy. The Gospel of Matthew starts with the genealogy where outsiders, outside people, outside races are brought in. And as we looked at two weeks ago, Matthew ends with a different kind of genealogy. He says in the last chapter, Jesus' last words, "'Go and make disciples of all nations.'" I'm inviting everybody in that through Jesus, our ethnic divides, our ethnic identities as they are, they don't have to divide us. They don't have to be things that pull us apart, but rather through Jesus, the story and the hopes and the promises of the story of Israel, that we would be blessed to be a blessing, become open to everybody, that we're all invited into this bloodline and family, I share it with David and with Ruth and with Jesus. So that brings us to the the last question. How could this be possible? How does, so you can make a promise like the Imagine Song does of being united despite our differences, but how does Jesus uniquely offer us to be united together? How is this genealogy suggesting that we could be united despite our differences? Well, here's how Matthew ends the genealogy. Let's look at this verse again. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until Messiah, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Or that number equals 42. 42 generations. Or we can break that up in six times seven. Six generations of seven. And this is one of those moments where Matthew is trying to say to us, but my lips hurt real bad. Forty-two. If you were here two weeks ago, this is a reference to Napoleon Dynamite, one of the greatest movies of all time. That's what he's trying to say to us. 42. And we want to say back, okay, 42. Like I could say some numbers, you know, 87, Sidney Crosby, number four, Scotty Barnes. I don't know. What do you want me to do? Just throw, are we throwing around numbers here? Is that what's happening? And he's saying, no, no, no. Like my lips hurt real bad. Six sevens, guys. But we don't catch it because we're not immersed in the story of God in the same way that the first hearers were. So here's what they would understand. In Jewish culture, every seventh day was called a Sabbath. You're probably aware of that whether you follow Jesus or not. And this is a day that you rest from your work and you go into the presence of God with the people of God and you worship and you renew yourself into the story of God. And every seventh year was called the Sabbath year, the Shemitah in Jewish tradition. And in this year, you would actually let your land rest. So you wouldn't farm your land. You would just let it sit there. And if you think about it, I think we might be like, oh sweet, I don't have to work for a whole year. But for them, it's not like a socialist situation. They, they would, they would, the biggest question they would have is like, how am I going to eat? How's my family going to eat? And what you're doing in that year of rest is you're practicing the habit of remembering that our God is a God who will provide. So the seventh year is the Shemitah year, the, the, the year of Sabbath. But every 49th year... The seventh seven was the year of Jubilee. And no matter what had happened in those 49 years, maybe your, your family had done really well and you'd accumulated a lot of land. You were one of the halves, Or maybe your family had done really terrible. Maybe there was drought in your part of, you know, you, you didn't have really great land and you lost all your land. No matter what happened on the Jubilee, you redivide the land And you give it back to its original caretakers. Because you come back into the story of God in a very real way, and you remind yourself that the land is not ours, it is God's. I'm just a steward, I'm just a caretaker of this land. Ultimately, it belongs to Him. I'm an alien and a tenant here, not the owner. And on the year of Jubilee, no matter what had happened in the previous 49 years, maybe, again, your family was really wise and, you, you know, you'd accumulated a lot of stuff. Or maybe your family had been terrible. Maybe, you know, your dad was a bit of a, you know, he, he didn't really work very hard and was lazy. And unfortunately, you ended up having to go and serve in another home. No matter what had happened on that 49th year, all the slaves were set free. And debts were forgiven. Because we remind ourselves that that's not our truest story, what we have and what we don't have, but ultimately that what we have is God, that every person has value because God gives them value, that we're made in his image, and ultimately we don't serve each other, we serve him. And it was a celebration this year, the year of Jubilee. It was a celebration of ultimate rest and returning to the story, where the things that divided us in normal life in the 49 years previously are removed and were reset into the story of God and what it means to be human, what it means to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, what it means to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world. And we have to celebrate because that's our truest story and everything becomes new. And so what Matthew is trying to say to us and to the original hearers is that that our history is just one generation short of this Jubilee blessing, of the release of captives, and having debts forgiven and our inheritances returned. And by structuring his genealogy in this way, he's trying to say that Jesus is the seventh seven. It's the year of jubilee come in a person. And all the havoc that we've created in the 49 generations before. All the ways that we've had these gender-based power struggles, or that we found our value based on our status in different ways, or that we fought wars because of our race and our nationality, all those things become less true about us. And we have this offer to be restored in the person of Jesus, to be invited into the person of Jubilee. And this was a shocking, but a very, I think, hopeful declaration for the first people who heard it, So what might it mean for us 2,000 years later? Let's talk about two things quickly here as we close. The first is that we also are invited to jubilee in Jesus. You know, the Bible doesn't actually say the same thing as John Lennon. John Lennon's like, let's get rid of all possessions, let's get rid of all nationalities and all ethnicities and all that stuff. But the genealogy isn't saying that. The genealogy isn't saying we shouldn't be men or women, or that we should stop, you know, uh, working towards God's promises, being wise in the world, and living towards being the person of character in Jesus. The Jewish mentality wasn't like, look, in 49 years, I'm going to get my land back anyway, so let's just, like, party. Let's just take it easy let 's not work hard that 's not the way that the Bible uh, advocates living, or it doesn 't say that we need to strip ourselves of our ethnic identity, that we shouldn 't be black or white or Asian or uh, you know French or whatever you are. you know I am a canadian german Chinese male that 's trying to live in the way of Jesus. All those things are still true about me, and the bible doesn 't advocate them not being true about me, but the invitation to receive Jesus as my jubilee means that these markers and these distinctions that we all have are no longer the most true thing about me. That my identity doesn't rest in any of them. And that these markers are no longer supreme in my life, but rather my identity rests in Jesus. That he becomes the radical center of my life. He becomes my resume that I put forward, my status, my home, and my reason for celebration. And whether you follow Jesus or not, like all of us have these... Jubilees in our lives, the places that we put our hope or that we find our rest or the things that make us feel like we're at the front of the line or maybe like we're at the back of the line. And they can be religious things. They can be things like your moral standing or how much theology that you know you know, or how much you give or how much you serve or that you prayed a prayer 10 years ago. Or they can be non-religious things, how much money you have, how your portfolio is doing, how your family is doing, what your marks are in school the size of your Instagram following, or, like, how many texts you get. Um, we, our family was in Texas, and we flew back. And uh, when I got off the plane, I turned my phone on, and I had 152 texts on my phone, which was both overwhelming for an introvert, and also I was like, oh, people missed me, you know? Like, it kind of <laughs> felt good. Um, it may sound like bragging, but they were mostly from my mom. Um, but we have those things. That, like, I, I, I don't really... Uh, I don't think I care about it that much, but when those 152 texts pop up, I kind of like, ah, well, you know, I'm not doing too bad. Um, But we all have those things. Where maybe where you are in your company, where you are on the corporate ladder, or the generational values you have. I'm glad I'm not part of this generation, or I wish I was part of that generation. We all have things in our lives that define us and and uh, separate us. But Jesus comes to us and says, all of those things do matter about you. But they'll divide us rather than bring us together if Jesus is not at the center of who we are. They'll cause division and alienation and wars and domestic violence and racism. And instead, the invitation for each of us is to see Jesus, who by all accounts should be a person who is included, a person who's inside where it really matters in God's family, but his story is that he actually went outside, in the story of Jesus, in Matthew, he begins on the outside, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, he has to be, even leave his own country. And then his story ends, him being kicked outside of the city, sent outside, all of his friends leave him. He leaves life itself by dying, and even is cast out of God's presence. He's someone who goes to the outside, so that he can bring the outsider in, so that he can call us into his family. And his invitation to us is to put that story and put that person and that jubilee at the center of our lives, to let Jesus shine there and become the truest thing about us, the reason that we celebrate, our jubilee. And that's how he becomes our peace. As it says in Ephesians, that's how the walls of hostility are broken down, is by putting Jesus at the center. And Paul says in Philippians, that's how we'll shine like stars. When we take this story of Jesus, the story who walks the path of downward mobility, who the outsider on our behalf, when we put it in the middle of our lives, in the middle of our community, that's when we'll shine like stars in the world. That's when the glory of God will be seen. And so as we move into a time of response, I just invite you into also a time of contemplation. You know, what are those things that are your jubilee? Those things that you're putting at the center of your life instead of Jesus? And then just to take some time to confess those things are in my life and to Put Jesus back there as we sing, as we worship together, as we take communion together, as we give, to pull those things out of the center and reorient ourselves on Jesus to celebrate, to worship, to sing together. And the last thing is I invite you to, and I think this, this genealogy invites us to do, is to practice the radical centering of Jesus with an invitation to the table together. You know, in Jesus' time, one of the ways that you showed who was in and who was out was who you It was one of the most clear boundary defined in uh, in their culture, and this is why when Jesus goes and eats with sinners, if you've read the gospel, it was always such a scandalous thing because he was saying, "I'm actually down with these folks; uh, they should be out, and, and they sh- uh, they should be out, but I'm inviting them in." And nobody in the gospel would know this better than Matthew, the person to who this gospel is attributed to, Levi, because he was a tax collector, someone a rabbi would normally never ever eat with, but Jesus comes and eats with him, invites him into the family. And so when we come to the table, this this invitation to this genealogy and this invitation to have Jesus as our Jubilee is also an invitation to eat with Jesus, to come and eat together, to center ourselves around his story, to take it literally into our bodies. And so I'm going to be up here with a basket of our elements, invite you as we sing together to come and grab one, and then Mo will lead us through a time where we just center ourselves on that story and we come to the table and we say, yeah, maybe my I don't f- feel like I fit in Jesus' genealogy, but I'm going to take his invitation to come to the table and center myself around him. So would you join me as we pray and I'll invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a time of response. But we thank you so much for this. Um, it's, it is a super weird uh, list of people to us and also a really weird way of starting a story Um, But I pray that you would help us to to understand what what the author of the Gospel of Matthew is trying to get across to us through it. That you do call us to. uh, I think we all have this hope of, of this rest, of this year of jubilee, of this time where we're restored to your story. And we thank you that that invitation comes in the person of Jesus. So I pray for us now that as we reflect on our own lives, as we respond in giving, in singing, uh, in reconciliation with one another, in taking uh, the Lord's Supper together, that you would remind us of this story, that you would recenter center us on you, and you would give us a reason to celebrate that you are here and that you long to be with us and invite us to the table. And I pray that that would uh, uh, be continually true of our community, that we'd be people who put you at the center, that your light may shine out from us, that as we uh, center ourselves on you, that the divides that we have by, that come about because of our differences would be less and less because we centered instead on you. So teach us that in this time as we respond together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.